obviously, if you are fond of quiet churches, ours may just run you buggy. But uh, <clears throat> we like to worship the Lord here at Calvary Gospel Church. We trust that you do. Now, the best that I can say to anyone who likes a quiet church is that when you come, it isn't necessary that you get loud. And if you could convince a whole lot of people that your way is okay, then probably you could tone it down a little bit. Basically, what I'm saying is it's good to gather in the house of the Lord and everybody worships God the way he personally would like to worship God. I think this is very, very important. Take your Bibles and turn to the general epistle of John, 1 John. And I want to speak from the second chapter, starting with verse 3. <clears throat> Again, I trust that all of you had a great holiday on Thursday. We had... Uh, just a remarkable time. My wife is the best cook on the planet Earth. And she just uh, did a great job with uh, the Thanksgiving meal. Of course, I'm sure that a lot of you feel that you're the best cook or perhaps your spouse or your mother. I have been surrounded by good cooks all my life, and it is quite evident. <coughs> Praise God. Everybody happy this morning? Everybody just smile real big and just laugh. Just good time to laugh, isn't it? <clears throat> Praise God. Just good to be alive and be in the house of God. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Good to see all the deer hunters back to church. Praise God. All right. 1 John 2, verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not, keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, John was a very compassionate type person, but you have to understand he's writing under the influence of the Holy Ghost, and he is quite straightforward in his language here. But whosoever keepeth his word... In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abide in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. And God bless you, you may be seated. I want to speak on the subject, the test of knowing Christ. I always like to call the name of Christ, and that is Jesus. But because he uses this term when he talks about Christ, I want to title this the test of knowing Christ, basically the test of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. Now Jesus says in John fourteen fifteen, if you have your Bibles, you... No doubt we'll choose to follow along by turning to some of these scriptures. We'll give you a little time to turn there if you'd like. So turn to John 14, 15. I want to back up and read verse 
13, 14 and 15, because the new promise and privilege in prayer is given here. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, what did he say he would do? He said, I'll fulfill that, that petition. All right? And then verse 14, If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Basically what he's saying is that this relationship is pretty much a two-way relationship. While we don't like to think of it as that way, we like to think of God that he just keeps answering prayer when we don't uh, particularly care to communicate with him. But the ideal relationship is that that uh, the Lord is saying that uh, if you ask of me something, I will do it. Then what's wrong with me asking of you something and say you fulfill it? Isn't that the way a true love relationship works? And then, of course, <clears throat> quite often the Lord challenged the disciples that walked with him concerning their love for, for him. Uh, Peter was questioned three times, do you love me more than these? And, of course, he said, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asked him, do you love me? Jesus was using a different Greek word than Philip, not Philip, than, than uh, Peter was uh, answering in. Basically, this is what Jesus was saying, do you love me? He used the word agape, which is the ultimate love, and and. Peter used the, the word phileo or philia, which Philadelphia comes from, brotherly love. And when he answered, he said, I'll, let me put it in, in, in the way we would say it today. Do you love me? And Peter said, you know, Lord, I care for you. You know I'm very fond of you. And Jesus asked him again, do you love me? He said, no, Lord, you know. You, you know you're you're a great friend of mine. I'm, I I I care for you. I really appreciate you. But he just couldn't get it out. Why? Because he had denied the Lord. And he thought it would be most hypocritical to say, "Oh yes, I really love you." After he had denied the Lord the way that he had denied the Lord. I remember reading a story several years ago. It was in one of the old revival books that someone gave me. It had to do with a Methodist pastor. Stopped by on a Sunday afternoon. He was on his way to church, and there was a brother that had not been in a few weeks. He'd been ill, so the preacher stopped by, and the man was sitting out on a porch in a swing. And when the preacher approached him, he, the old gentleman didn't even look up. His eyes were filled with tears. He continued to swing very, very slowly in the swing, reading his Bible. And uh, the minister then called him by name. The old gentleman looked up and he said, Brother, he said, I know you've been sick and we've been missing you. I just wanted to stop by on the way to church and see if you're doing okay. And he said, Well, I'm not for sure that I'm doing okay. He said, Why? I said, Well, he said, Truthfully, he said, uh, I'm trying to find out if I love the Lord. 
And the ministers were somewhat taken back because <clears throat> this man had been faithful to the cause of the Lord many, many years. There was no reason to doubt, you know, his fidelity to God. He had been missing for a few weeks only because of his illness. So when the minister <clears throat> questioned him further about this, why do you say this? He said, well, truthfully, he said, I, I read in 1 John 2 a statement made by John, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said, well, br brother, you have always kept the commandments of the Lord. He said, well, to the best of my knowledge, I have. But truthfully, he said, <clears throat> and this is probably the first time I'd, I've ever made this, this confession, but I've never read the whole Bible. He says, I understand a lot about the Bible. I've heard you preach. I've given some Bible studies myself. I've raised my children to, 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 to know God. But he said, the truth of the matter is, uh, there are parts of the Bible I've never read. And he said, how can I really say, after being challenged with a scripture like this, that I love God when I don't even know what the Bible says? How can I say I keep his commandments if I haven't read all of them? Well, <clears throat> naturally, the pastor was somewhat taken back by this statement. But rather than interfere with this man's quest for a deeper relationship with God, he encouraged the man to continue to read the Scripture and continue to grow in knowledge and in grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose this was the best advice you could give any man who is in a quest for a deeper relationship with God. Now, I know that I'm speaking this morning to people who are very, very sincere in their walk with God. I know I'm speaking to people who do genuinely love God. There are so many people here in this congregation that I, I've got so much confidence in. And... Uh, if there would be any person here that I would in any way hesitate to commend, it would be only because I just don't know you. But I think we've all gathered here because to a degree we love God. To get out on a rainy morning like this and come into the house of the Lord, it's just great. And I think that and that alone tells me something about your desire to serve God. But nevertheless, I do know that a deep intimacy with God is created by a continual hungering, questing for a greater relationship with God. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 John 2, and I read this in verse 6, but I want to read it again. He that saith, he abideth in me, ought, all, ought himself also to walk, even as he walked, speaking, speaking of the way the Lord walked. So the pattern, the example is given us in the Scripture as to how we should walk. And I, I think we'd all be amazed at the astounding impact that Christianity would have on the world if, if we would just all walk like Jesus walked. 
And we are living in a day in which uh, there are so many people that, you know, they don't like to say much publicly about the Lord. I uh, <clears throat> just heard on the radio this week a report, uh, some minister was given a report, actually it was a news type report, and they were talking about America and in its relationship with God. And they were saying that 97% of all Americans claim some affiliation to God. Now, church membership's not that great, and certainly church attendance is not that great. I would say that uh, probably a very low percentage of Americans are in church this morning. But uh, <clears throat> at any rate, they were saying about 97% of all Americans claim some affiliation with God. In other words, if you ask them, are you a Christian? Yes. Now, yesterday, I was traveling in my vehicle, and I turned the radio on, and they were they had the Tom Likas show that was uh, was was uh, aired from uh, I don't know which union it was uh, uh, here at the university on his un memorial union, yes. But uh, at any rate, uh, they were talking about prayer in the school. I don't know if any of you heard this. But uh, one gentleman had called in, and he said, well, what's wrong with a moment of silence? And, of course, uh, Tom Likas was saying, uh, why waste a moment? He said, we don't have time to waste on, on things like that. Well, I was just amazed at the, the number of students that were agreeing. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. You know, why pray in the school? Because you know that is a consideration now, and that is going back to prayer in school. And it isn't amazing that when it when it's spoken of publicly in, in, in a non-religious atmosphere, how many people think it's it's a waste of time? Then you go to church, and and you know it's not a waste of time. Everybody wants to be a Christian when they're in church. But the thing that that we must be impressed with when we when we look at the life of the Lord was that. That, that he was righteous when he was in the synagogues and he was righteous when he was out in the public. And he was spiritual when he was in the synagogues and he was spiritual when he was out in the public. And, and he did not divorce himself from his relationship with God just because the atmosphere was non-Christian, quote-unquote. And sometimes Christians do that. And this is the reason why that, that we must challenge ourselves. So if you want to know how the Lord walked, you need to read the Scripture and read it very carefully. I think what Christians need to do is make an in-depth study of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. Now, there are a lot of people that claim to be Christian that spend a lot of time in books reading the biographies of people who established their particular faith. If you go and talk with a Mormon, most all of them can tell you a lot about Brigham Young or Joseph Smith. Why? Because they're required to, to study this, and they emphasize their lives. Now, basically what I'm saying is, I know there's nothing wrong with, with reading about the life of an individual, but Jesus Christ was the true founder of, of the church. 
And God forbid that we know more about some man who walks in what he calls the way of the Lord more than we would know about the Lord himself. Now, in Second Peter, First Peter, pardon me, the second chapter, we find a statement made by Peter, reading verse twenty-one of First Peter two, for even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, the Lord didn't just do this for an example. He did it, and in doing it, he left this as an example. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. In other words, the, the Lord just felt that, that God would be the righteous judge, and he committed himself into the hands of even of the system of his day, knowing that God is a true righteous judge. And this is, the, this is the way the Lord did it. So, if we want to follow in his footsteps, all we need to do is just read about Jesus Christ and the way he responded and the way he reacted and, and what he did. And you can't go wrong by following Jesus. I understand the word Christian, it really means a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. One who disciplines himself to the teachings of another is called a disciple. Now, <clears throat> any spirit that opposes the basic attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, see, the word attitude and spirit uh, can be the same many times in the Scripture. When we're talking about spirit, we're not talking about the spirit of Christ, but we're talking about the spirit of man or the attitude of man. Like Jesus told the disciples when they, when Peter said, we will call down fire from heaven to destroy this, this individual. Jesus told him, said, Peter, you know not what spirit you're of. Basically what he's saying is, Peter, that's not the right attitude to have. When David cried and prayed, Lord, renew within me the right spirit, he's basically saying, put the right attitude back in me. I need the right attitude. So when we say <clears throat> spirit, we're talking about any attitude that opposes this spirit and attitude of the Lord is not of God. When Jesus was here, he was God with us. In other words, he brought God to us. Jesus said, The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but of my Father that sendeth me. Now, what I'd like to do then, I'd like to, to really challenge you by having you to turn back to 1 John, the second chapter, and we want to read verse 15 through 19. This is a continuation of the original reading. All right. 1 John 2, 15 and 19. All right. The Bible says, Love not the world, neither the things that are of the world. If any man love the world, 
the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, basically, the only way the devil can come to you as an individual is through one of these three channels, either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and that's exactly what happened. The devil spoke to Eve, the Bible says, when she saw that the fruit was good. Now, it, it's strange that you could look at something and say that's good when you've never tasted it. But I'm sure that many of you have looked at food and said that's bad. And you probably were pretty close to being right when you never tasted it. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? That... that she looked at it and said, this is, this is good. And then, of course, the devil told her, said, Now, if you eat of this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God himself, knowing good uh, and bad. And, of course, that's the pride of life. All right? <clears throat> so we see the lust of the eyes. First, the eyes had this, the lust, then the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And this is the only way that the devil can, can, can touch you. Basically, the only thing the devil can do with to you without express permission from God is to lie to you. But he lies to you and makes you feel that things that are bad are good. Even he makes you feel bad about yourself. Feel badly about, about yourself. He likes to tell you that you're no good. Uh... <clears throat> And, and you begin to feel this way. And, and so as a result, you start looking for ways and avenues to exalt yourself. In doing so, we usually fall into sin. Humility that's found in the Bible, the Bible speaks of us as being humble when we come to God. Humility is just bringing everything in its proper perspective so that a man looks at himself like he really is. It's not playing that old worn-out shoe role where, well, I'm a nobody, I'm no good. That's not it at all. It's just looking at yourself like you really are. That's why Paul said a man ought not think of himself more highly than what he is. Humility is not the opposite of pride. The opposite of pride is shame. And shame comes as a result of one being smitten by God as a result of his pride. Pride goeth before fall. And that's when the shame comes in. When John the Baptist came upon the scene, what was he going to do? In the Old Testament, the Bible says that John the Baptist, who was to introduce Jesus Christ, was going to take and make a straight pathway that led to the Lord. He was going to take the crooked paths and make them straight. He was going to take the exalted mountains and bring them down. He was going to take the, the low valleys and bring them up. Basically, what he's saying is, those people who are still riding the crest of pride, what's he going to do? He's, he, he's going to preach unto those people, and because he was preaching Jesus Christ, and because he was preaching of the judgment of sin, he was going to bring those people down to a level of humility. Those people who had already been brought down by God. Because vengeance does belong to the Lord. 
and some had suffered shamefully because of their wrongdoing. Some had been ostracized from their families and even from society because of their wrongdoing. Those people who lived in that shameful, regretful, guilty stage, John was going to pick those people up. And those who had ventured off too far this way or that way, John was to bring everything to a straight path that led to the Lord. Now, let's get on with reading the Scripture, and we'll go back to that. All right, verse 17, And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. All right? Now, let's just stop there, and let's look at verse 4 again. In verse 4 of chapter 2, the Bible says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Obviously, what, what was happening here, if you read the whole book, you will find that John was contending against a misunderstanding of some of the doctrines of grace and some of the doctrines of salvation. Basically, before the apostles faded from the scene, a whole lot of teachers were coming along teaching that grace was licensed for sin. And then, of course, we have salvation, which was a doctrine of separation from sin. The two are not compatible. That is, as far as the explanations are given by the teachers of their day. We know that grace is not taught in the Scripture as license for sin. That grace is for the reason why that we should lay sin aside. This is the reason why that Paul says... In Romans 7, Romans 5, pardon me, he said, Where grace doth abound, where sin doth abound, the grace of God doth much more abound. That's how he concludes Romans chapter 5. And that simply means that if you live in a society where there is a tremendous influx of, of ideas and sinful ways and a lot of corruption, grace, the divine leading of the heart, and God speaking inwardly to you when you are in an extremely sinful, corrupt condition that the voice of God will be sufficient to lead you out of that. So where sin doth abound, the grace of God doth much more abound. That God will always give you the compensation. And some of you are in homes and situations where... You know, you were born into that home. Some of you, your parents are not living for God. Some of you, your spouses are not living for God. And you may have not have a, much control over what takes place in that home. But the Scripture is saying that where there is sin, there is always compensation. That God will always compensate. And this is the reason why you find people who have a genuinely made-up mind to live for God, that they can live for God, keep the right attitude, or have the right spirit, regardless of the circumstances. And you'll find that sometimes that individual who is so set on doing God's will, the worse the conditions get, the sweeter they become. And that happens, that happens all the time. Why? Because there's always that voice of God that's louder than the voice of Satan. And I thank the Lord for that. 
Then Paul starts Romans 6 by saying, What shall we do? do? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. In other words, he's saying, Now, what about this business? Should we just go ahead and sin? Knowing that, that, that God's voice is going to speak to us. and Oh, no. He said, How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us that were baptized unto Jesus Christ was baptized unto his death. Therefore, we are buried with him in baptism. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so shall we also rise to newness of life. And when he talks about newness of life, he's talking about a different lifestyle, a changed lifestyle. That in the midst of a world that's corrupt, exceedingly corrupt, that God can have righteous people. But there was a thought that there were teachers that were teaching that 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 uh, the forsaking of a sinful life was pretty much optional. That they were born inwardly, and because they were born inwardly, and they still lived inside of this robe of flesh, that you could just pretty much do what you wanted to do. That's that's what John is is basically dealing with. Some declared that that uh, one can legitimately claim to know God and at the same time be indifferent to the commandments of God. They said, no, that's possible. That's legitimate. In other words, you can know God yet be indifferent to the commandments of God. And I know that I've discussed this with, with, with people who, who claim to know God yet at the same time... Uh, they just uh, didn't read the Scripture and didn't care much about following God. And that's not what the Scripture is talking about. Let's read on a little bit further. <clears throat> All right. In verse 18, Little children, it is the last time, as ye have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know... That it is the last time. Now he's talking about these are the last days. All right? And basically what he's saying is that there are many antichrists today. Now we know the scripture talks about in the book of Revelation of the, the antichrist that's going to come. The antichrist is one who is anti-God or anti-Christ. And in the book of uh, Revelation, the Bible speaks of the great things that he will do uh, he will perform great miracles and such but yet he doesn't walk in the commandments of God that's why he has been labeled antichrist but John takes it a step further by saying that there are many antichrists among us today now what is he basically saying he's basically saying that there are people who profess Jesus and yet who love the world and the pleasures of it which is anti-Calvary. It's anti-the cross. It's anti-God. That's exactly what it is. So they distance themselves from the gospel and from the usage of the cross. So basically what we're saying is that every spirit that opposes Christ is the spirit of antichrist. That's the only way the antichrist will be able to take over the world during the tribulation period. 
And that is that men's hearts are conditioned right now to be anti-God, anti-Christ. <clears throat> so they place themselves against God in His righteousness. Now let me just take this one dimension further. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians 3. And this is a passage of Scripture I teach in our stewardship classes. We have a class going on right now. I do this on video, but we cover this lesson. In verse 14 of Philippians 3, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now this is just before Paul was, was executed. And what is he saying? He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling. In other words, Paul always had a goal that was out there, an attainable one, but one that challenged him. He did not feel like he had arrived. He felt like that uh, he still had a lot to do. He was still pressing. He was still pushing. He was still moving. He was still trying. He was still praying. He was still fasting. He was still seeking the Lord. In verse 15, Paul says, Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. Now, you've got to be very, very careful when you follow people. You follow them only as they follow the Lord. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And while it is very necessary for us to have good examples among us, we should never lay the Bible aside and follow man without reading the Scripture and making a deliberate attempt to follow the Lord Himself. Verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now notice what he says, whose end is destruction. In other words, if, if people have an antichrist spirit today, if in the Bible we see the, the false prophet, the antichrist, destroyed in the lake of fire, People who are anti-Christ today will also be destroyed. That's basically what he's saying. And it seems strange that there would be some Christians who are saved by the cross that would become an enemy to the very thing that saved them. Now this is what he's going to do. He's going to tell us how we become enemies of the cross, all right? In verse 19, whose end is destruction. First, whose God is their belly. Now, the word belly is used here. It means innermost being, just like John 7, 37 through 39. In that last day of the feast, Jesus stood crying, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believeth on me, as the Scripture said, out of his belly, his innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. God satisfies us inwardly that causes us to be Christians outwardly. 
In other words, you can't separate character from conduct. This old business of it doesn't make any difference what you are outwardly. It's only what's inside that counts. That is not found in the Scripture. Now, I know someone challenged me one time and said, Well, Brother Grant, they brought, it, they brought it up and said, Look what the Bible says. The Bible says God looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's true. It doesn't say God doesn't look on the outward appearance. It says man doesn't have the ability to look into the heart. Only God can do that. That as far as you can see, it's just external. But God can see the external and the internal. You're taking that totally out of context when you say it's what's inside that counts, not what's outside. You cannot separate character from conduct. Even the best of the psychologists, psychologists and psychiatrists of today will tell you that what you are inwardly determines what you do outwardly. And you're in for counseling because you have been a naughty boy. You don't go in for counseling just because you, you, you've been thinking wrong. You've been thinking bad things. You haven't bothered anybody. You went in and talked with the psychologist about that. He'll say, how has it affected your behavior? Well, it hasn't. He'd probably say, well, case dismissed. That doesn't mean that he's saying the way you think is not important. Because the best among us can have evil thoughts. You must control those thoughts. You must bring every thought into captivity. You must rebuke the devil. You must cast those thoughts out. You can't, you, you can't stop a salesman from knocking on your door even if you have a sign up there saying otherwise. But just because he knocks on the door doesn't mean you have to invite him in and entertain him and give him a cup of coffee and a cookie. And some people think just because something raced through their head that they've got to think about it a little while. It doesn't work that way. Well, it does with some people, but it shouldn't. So what the Bible is saying here, whose God is their belly, basically what he's saying is that there are some people that, that their sole pleasure in life is just to feel good about things. And that, that's it. And if, and if I come to church and a preacher makes me feel good, this, this was a great service. But if I come to church and somehow he doesn't stroke me real good, uh, things are not, not too good. You know, every now and then you, you need to go under the, the sharp knife of a surgeon to take out some unwanted things in the body. And we all understand that, but there are some unwanted things in the soul too. And these things need to be taken out by the Word of the Lord. See, the Word of the Lord is quick and powerful and sharper than any surgeon's scalpel. Change a little bit. But it is. It's just that way. But some people, their, their aim in life is just, you know, uh, you know, I just, I've got to feel good about everything. And I've, I've told parents this, you know, the best thing could possibly happen to your little children is to every now and then just have to suffer for things maybe that they were hurt about that 
that maybe they were innocent in. I know, I know, I know that I, I diametrically oppose modern psychology when I say that. They say it is, it is extremely damaging to the emotions of children when they're, they're punished or disciplined for things they did not do. I disagree. Now, that doesn't mean that you punish them intentionally for things they didn't do. But when you're innocent in the matter and you discipline them because you think they did it and they didn't do it, the best thing to do is sit them down and say, look, all your life this is going to happen to you. It just so happened that I was involved now. Now, I'm sorry that I did it because I know otherwise now. However, this is the game of life. It caused Jesus to be crucified. And you can never be associated with the cross more in any shape, form, or fashion than when you suffer wrongfully the things that you're innocent of. Amen? <clears throat> whose God is their belly. Now notice this. Whose glory is in their shame. In other words, what the Bible is saying, if you read another translation, Philip's translation states that they glory about their sin, or they brag about their sin. In other words, they will do things that diametrically oppose the life and example of the Lord and brag about it. And they will do it under the banner of truth. I had to talk to an individual one time because of the disturbances that this individual was making among the various members of the church. And this person was doing it under the banner of truth. Well, I'm a staunch believer in truth, and I don't care whose feelings I hurt. You know, the truth is the ultimate. Well, I believe that, but do you, do you, do you know that according to Scripture, that love is the vehicle upon which the doctrine of truth is transported to individuals? You preach Christ with love. And that's the only vehicle that you can transport the truth to people with. And if you take it off the vehicle of love and gentleness and kindness and long-suffering, and, and you put the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ on the vehicle of a bad attitude and try to transport it to someone, see how many people you're going to affect. And you know, if what you're doing is that important, you'd just be classified as a fool if you didn't seek out the most productive means to see that it's that's transported to someone. But this individual, I mean just blasting people right and left. I set the individual down and said, now wait just a minute. Now what you're doing, you're being very hateful about the truth. And if there's anything the truth should do, listen to this, it should give you enough confidence to keep your composure. Most people get upset and angry when they don't have confidence 
that just stating the truth will work. They want to interject too much of themselves into it. But they, they, these people were bragging about things that they did that were not right. And yet at the same time, they were talking about the cross. Now, it's also in the book of Philippians that Paul talks about people who preach Christ. He said some people preach Christ for contention. What do you mean by that? Because they know that truth will win an argument. So, if you can win an argument by preaching Christ, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach Christ. But you see, the emphasis is not on the Lord then. The emphasis is on who? On yourself. See, that's the Antichrist spirit that we're talking about. Because that opposes God himself. All right, let's go on. And the last thing, who mind earthly things, and that simply means they keep their mind on earthly things. And I'm amazing at, amazed at how many people that I know of that all they can talk about is a shopping trip, a new dress, a new suit, a new this, a new that. Now, I know that we all have to have new dresses, new suits, new cars, new everything. Why? Because we live in a world that's full of deterioration and everything dies or rots or rusts. You get the best car in the world and give it five years and you look at it and you say, my, this one time was just the pride of my life. <laughs> it doesn't pay to put your emphasis there because these things fade. They pass away. So the three things, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who keeps their mind on earthly things, those things cause these individuals to become enemies of the cross. In other words, the very thing that saved you, you become an enemy to it. And that's what John is saying when he talks about the spirit of Antichrist that is in the world today. So obviously there the world when the Lord comes back, and this means that the stage has been set for the Antichrist to take over. And isn't it amazing that the Antichrist will Will, will force a mark to be placed on the hand or the forehead and if you don't have it you won't be able to buy or sell now notice I said buy or sell and if the stage has been set for the Antichrist, because people, even those who claim to be Christian, has become an enemy to the cross, because that their sole desire is for self-gratification, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, who keep their mind on earthly things, who brag about their sin, you can understand then why such a mark 
would be easy for them to take. Now, what are you saying, Brother Grant? I'm saying that we need a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like for you to turn with me to John 17, 3. I want to read <clears throat> one verse to you, and then I have a couple of other scriptures. And this is life eternal, that you may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And this is life eternal, that you may know thee. You know, we need to know God. We need to know God. I'd like for you to stand. My time is up. And I'd like for you to turn to Matthew 7, verse 23. Now, Jesus was concluding the Sermon on the Mount. He warns against false teachers in Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are as ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. In other words, if they are inwardly corrupt, what happens? They will be corrupt outwardly. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. You see, the true test of Christianity is not in how many devils you can run off. It's not in how many people that you can heal. It's not in how many prophecies you can give. That's what he's saying. Now, that's not to say that that's not an important function of the church. He's saying that's not the true test. Verse 23, And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And the word knew, K-N-E-W is found there, comes from the same Greek word that's found in Matthew 1, 25. When Joseph and Mary were there and they brought forth their first son. His name was Jesus. Now they were married at this time. Joseph went on and took Mary to be his wife even though 
she was pregnant because the Lord told him to do this. But she has not known a man. But that which is in her is of the Holy Ghost. But the Bible says that Joseph never knew her. That simply means they, they never consummated the marriage with sexual intimacy. And when the Bible's talking about, I never knew you, he's simply saying that there was never that spiritual intimacy between me and that person that caused that person to always consider me, that caused that person to walk in my footsteps. But there was too much of the world and too much of the influence of the devil in that person's life. Didn't Jesus spend a lot of time instructing people, you can't hold hands with God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other. Christianity cannot become a profession. Christianity is an experience. An experience. And what about you today? Do you have that experience with God? You can have it today. It starts by you repenting of all your sins by separating yourself from your sinful, lustful ways. You can then be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins. And you can be filled with God's Holy Spirit today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to come and seek the Lord. Right down to the front, you can just come and stand or kneel if you'd like. You can start this relationship with God today. Let me tell you something. We're real close to the rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are real close to the day in which the Antichrist himself will set up his reign on this planet Earth. The world is looking for a world leader, somebody that can lead the world into peace. They will accept the Antichrist according to prophecy, but he is not a man of peace. Not at all. But he makes people believe that he is. So as our praise singers begin to sing, why don't you step out and come and give your heart to God today. God bless you as you come and surrender. Come on right now. Yes, come on, give your heart to God. Oh, yes. Bless these who are coming. Come on, right now. With him means everything to me. Come give your heart to the Lord. This won't hurt you. This will be the best thing that's ever happened to you. This will be the start of a new life, a new day. 
the dawning of a great tomorrow. Yes, Lord. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah.